Hey there, I'm Lauren Hicks, pastor of Pacific Christian Center in Santa Maria, California. Thank you for joining us for today's podcast. It's my prayer that this message strengthens your faith and draws you closer to God. Now enjoy today's message. Second Samuel chapter 11, we're going to read this chapter together in just a moment. Today we turn our hearts back to our sermon series on the life of David. For a number of weeks we have been in a biographical study of one of the most prominent characters in the Bible, one of the most noted characters in the Bible, a man named David. And all those messages are on our church YouTube channel. You can uh, watch those on your own time. You can subscribe to the YouTube channel. You can even binge watch sermons, everybody. Did you know that? You can do that. So uh, I'm probably the only one here that does that, but uh, you, can do, you can do that uh, and kind of catch up on our series. We took a little break to do a couple things. We had a Sunday where we featured the ministry of Pacific Christian School. And then last weekend, we had a phenomenal weekend called Miracle Weekend. How many of you here last week for Miracle Weekend? God moved in a powerful way. And uh, can I tell you, God's doing miracles. And we've already heard stories and testimonies of what the Lord has done this past weekend. And so uh, we are unashamed, unashamed in our belief that God still does miracles. He still heals the sick, saves the lost, sets people free, opens doors of opportunity, makes provision. God does all kinds of miracles. We believe that he hears and he answers prayer. And we are praying that in your life as well. But today we turn our heart back to the life of David and the story of David in 2 Samuel. And I, uh, this sermon today, um, it's probably not a sermon where you're going to say a lot of amens. Can I just give you a little heads up? All right. This is a famous story in the life of David, but it's a sobering story. And we're going to ask the Lord how it speaks to our hearts and how we can apply that to. And I would ask you that before we get into the message today, uh, because um, for those of you who know, if you're looking at your Bible, kind of know where we're going already, you think, well, this story doesn't apply to me. And you could check out, you could catch the game on your phone. So you know how, how that is. But I'm asking you today to ask the Lord to open your heart and your mind to find ways in which this story can apply to your life. And I believe the Holy Spirit will do that for all of us. On June the 5th, 1976, I was just a little boy. But on that fateful day, a massive earthen dam in the state of Idaho called the Teton Dam collapsed. Without warning, the dam collapsed and sent millions of gallons of water into the Snake River Valley. On that sad day, 11 people died as a result of the breaking dam and the water that flowed into that valley. 16,000 livestock were killed. And they said that the financial damage of what happened because of the break of this dam was somewhere around $2 billion. That was back in the mid-1970s. And we might ask the question, how could a disaster like that occur? How could that happen? Did it happen suddenly? And the answer to that question is no. Beneath the waterline, out of sight, it wasn't visible to others, a hidden fault had been gradually weakening this earthen dam. It started very small, just a tiny bit of erosion. But over time, some small cracks began to do some damage, and eventually there was a major collapse. Out of sight, as you were to drive by that day before the collapse of that dam, it would have been something that you would not have noticed. But hidden below the waterline, the cracks eventually gave way to a massive collapse. And that's exactly what happened in David's life in this story. And friends, I come to you with a warning. That that's exactly what can happen in your life if you're not careful. When you think of the life of David, one of two events probably come to mind. You either remember David's battle against Goliath, and we preached about that a number of weeks back, or you remember that David committed adultery with Bathsheba. Both events were monumental events in David's life. With Goliath, we witnessed David's greatest victory, and with Bathsheba, we witnessed David's greatest failure. Up to this moment, David in the story of his life has never lost a battle. He is a victorious soldier. He is a victorious leader. Every time he steps onto the field of combat, David wins the battle. But when David entered the arena of combat with his own heart, he was suddenly defeated by a giant that was far more powerful than Goliath. 
Today, I want to preach a message that I've just simply titled today, Defeating the Giants Within. Defeating the Giants Within. Not the giants without, not the external giants, not the giants that are visible to everyone else around us, but I want to talk about defeating the internal giants, the giants that are beneath the surface, those cracks in our lives that no one else can see. Those are the giants that we need to attack. The giants we struggle with most are not the outward things, as bad as they are, as difficult as they are. The most devastating giants are not financial problems or even sickness or career problems. Our biggest giants are internal. The battles that take us out are personal Struggles like lust and greed and selfishness and anger and bitterness can be giants that destroy our faith in Jesus, our relationships with our family and friends, and even can sabotage our own future. And so today, we must hear the caution from the Word of God. We must guard our hearts and our minds. We must develop a close relationship with Jesus to defeat the giants that are within. Let's look at the story. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse number 1. This is how the Bible reads. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. Notice this next sentence. But David remained in Jerusalem. Verse 2. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. So David sends this word to Joab, his general, out in the field. Send me Uriah the Hittite, the husband of Bathsheba. Joab sent him to David, and when Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was and how the soldiers were and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. And David was told Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? And Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents. And my commander Joab and the Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. And David said to him, stay here one more day and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him and David made him drunk. In the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. Verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is the fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Joab sent David a full account of the battle, and he instructed the messenger... When you have finished giving the king this account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up and he may ask you, why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know they would shoot arrows from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, son of Jerushabeth? Didn't a woman drop an upper millstone on him from the wall that he died in Thebes? Why did you get so close to the wall? And if he asks you this, say to him, moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. The messenger set out, and when he arrived and told David everything Joab had sent him to say. And the messenger said to David, The men overpowered us and came out against us in the open country, but we drove them back to the entrance of the city gate. Then the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. David told the messenger, Say this to Job, Don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. 
When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. David by now is about 50 to 55 years old. Bible scholars believe that David has now been king for at least 20, maybe as many as 24 years. And under David's leadership, Israel has become a powerful nation. David has distinguished himself as a mighty warrior, as a gifted musician, as a visionary man of God. Yet David inwardly is fighting a battle. It's a battle with temptation and lust. There are cracks in David's soul. There are cracks in his life that most, except for maybe those that were the closest to him, could observe. They are out of sight, but David has some cracks in his foundation. The first sign of trouble in David's life was that he was following the cultural norm of the kings of his day by accumulating multiple wives and concubines. And he was violating God's law by doing such. Back in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 17, verse 17, God said that Israel's king should not, quote, multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, end quote. It appears that no one confronts David. I mean, after all, he is the king, right? I mean, what are we going to say to the king? But no one, not even his closest allies and his closest confidants are saying anything to David about the lifestyle that he is living in. And, and perhaps his advisors just simply thought that, you know, David's personal life is his own business. I mean, what happens in Jerusalem stays in Jerusalem, apparently. I mean, as long as the economy is expanding... As long as the national defense is strong, as long as the country is healthy, I mean, what difference does it make what David does with his personal life? But as David increased the number of wives and concubines, his lust is not satisfied. His lust continues to grow. And it reminds us today, hear these words, that the more we indulge a sexual appetite, the more it increases. This is why God has given us the guardrails of safety and protection. It's in the marriage of one man and one woman for life that God gives us the safety and protection that we need. It's an obedience to God's plan that we find fulfillment and blessing and safety. How many of you have ever driven in the mountains? Anybody? Let me see your hand if you've driven in the mountains. It's quite, a, quite a few of you have. And as you climb up into the mountains... Inevitably, the mountain road becomes curvy and windy, and we've been on some of these at high elevation, maybe it's seven or eight or 10,000 feet in elevation or even higher. The hairpin turns on those, on those roads, and you look off the side of the road and just see the sheer drop-off for thousands of feet. But on a good road, there are guardrails on that road, guardrails. I've never been with anyone in the car driving up or down a mountainous road like that in which I heard them curse the guardrails. I've never heard them complain on a mountain road. I wonder why the state of California or the state of Colorado decided to put guard. We don't need guardrails on a mountain road. It's really getting in my way. It's really hindering uh, the speed that I want to go. It's hindering the quality of my vacation in these mountains. We laugh at that because no one ever does that. The guardrails for us provide some safety. Now, I suppose if you're going fast enough, you could burst through the guardrails. But the guardrails then provide for us a sense of safety and a sense of security. The guardrails are there to save your life. And that's what the Word of God is for us. The Word of God for you and I are guardrails for our life. God's protective Boundaries. The guardrails of the Word of God are not there to punish us. They are not there to derive, deprive us of our happiness or our fulfillment or our comfort. The guardrails of God's Word, the principles of truth that we find in this book, are there to protect us. In verse 1, the Bible says, In the spring, at times when the kings go out to war, David sent Joab with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. And notice these words. But David remained in Jerusalem. David remained in Jerusalem. In David's mind, he's in a good place. After all, I think I've earned 
a little bit of R&R. I've earned a little bit of time off. I mean, Lord, think about all the years of battles. David was a warrior. David spent many years from his youth. Now he's in his 50s. Can I just kick back a little bit? Can I take a little, can a guy get a little time off? I mean, after all, look at the army I have built up. I have Joab, my commander, and, and, and we're not losing battles anywhere. It's, is it essential that I go to war? And so David decides to stay home. In his mind, he's in a good place. He doesn't feel like he has to stay engaged. He doesn't feel like he has to lead his army any longer. He's got people that can do that for him. And David, no doubt, at this point in history, is in a blessed place. He's in a comfortable place. But David is disengaged. And I think David is bored. Can I tell you today that boredom is a dangerous place to be? Boredom is a dangerous place to be. If you want to protect your soul and you want to protect your heart, the best thing for us to do is to stay busy about the work of the Lord. The best thing for us to do is to stay engaged in God's Word, to stay engaged in the church, to stay engaged in the things of God. The closer we can be to the Lord, the better. The Scripture says in James that if we draw near to the Lord, the Lord would draw near to us. Boredom can be a dangerous place. And I, I know as we read this story, we might think, well, it's a compelling story. It's an interesting story, but that could never happen to me. What happened to David in this story won't happen to me. But the Apostle Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Some translations say, if you think you're standing firm, take heed, pay attention that you don't fall. He's reminding us that we can be a place where we kind of kick back a little bit and we take it easy and we just think, you know, everything is, is good. You know, all those years of serving God and all those years of leading small groups and all those years of volunteering and all those years of just being so involved. You know what? I'm a little tired. I'm going to kick back a little bit without realizing it. We could put ourselves in a dangerous situation. David, the warrior, has now become David, the vacationer. He's disengaged in his priorities and his responsibilities. And now David is susceptible, he's susceptible to temptation. Maybe David is stirring from a late afternoon nap. He's in the royal bedroom. The setting sun casts an amber glow across the evening sky. A warm spring breeze billows the curtains in David's bedroom. He gets out of bed, he yawns, and he stretches, and he can smell the fragrance of his gardens coming out the window. David slips on his robe and his slippers, and he steps out on his palace balcony. And then there's verse 2. One evening, David got up from his bed, walked around on the roof of his palace, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. Seeing the woman... David stops, it catches his attention. He can't help but notice. He stops and, and then David lingers. A glance becomes a gaze and a gaze becomes a stare. And in this moment, David loses all awareness of who he is, where he is. He forgets about everything in this moment as his lust begins to grow. David is only present in this moment. Everything else is forgotten. David forgets about his family. He forgets about his kingdom. He's even forgotten about God. David has forgotten about his relationship with God. He's forgotten about the word of God. He's forgotten about all those songs of praise that he's written to God that the people would sing and we still do as well today. It all started because David was in a place where he could be tempted. He's walking on the roof. This is the Old Testament version of browsing the internet alone late at night. He points, he clicks, and he clicks again, and he dwells. Verse 3, the Bible says, David sent someone to find out about her. And the man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now there is something that is uncommon in this verse of Scripture but I believe this man knew what was in the heart of David in this moment. And the man, in a very careful way, is trying to give the king a warning. It's very common during this time period to identify someone by their family line. 
to identify them by their father, by their grandfather. They'd go back sometimes generations and say, oh, I'm, a, I'm aware of that family. I'm familiar with that family when you start going back the names. And usually in Scripture, it's the names of the father. And so if I was in the story, you'd say, oh, yes, Lauren Hicks, son of Ron Hicks, son of Sam Hicks. And I'd say, oh, yeah, I know about the Hicks family. But the messenger in this story goes beyond telling us about Bathsheba's father. He does something unusual. He tells us about Bathsheba's husband. And David receives this subtle warning. You better watch out, fellow. She has a husband. She is a married woman. She's taken. David ignores the warning. And there is another crack in his foundation. If you're taking notes today, I want you to write this down and think about this today. It is easier to avoid temptation than it is to resist sin. It is easier to avoid temptation than it is to resist sin. I'm going to say it one more time. It is easier to avoid temptation than it is to resist sin. At this point, David has gone too far. He cannot fight the raging lust inside of him. He cannot fight the battle within him. He has forgotten about God, his family, the protocol, the, the, the kingdom. He's forgotten about everything that's decent and moral and right. He's gone too far now. The only thing left is to fulfill his lust. But David made a choice to put himself in that situation. When David walks out on his balcony that, that afternoon, that evening, he may not have been able to avoid looking at Bathsheba. He may not have avoided seeing her. It may have caught his attention. She may have been there. There may have been nothing to do about that. He didn't go out there planning to look at a woman. It just happened when he walked out there. She was there. But in that moment, how many of you know David had a choice to make? He had a choice to make. I want to say something really important for those of you battling and struggling with temptation. And by the way, isn't that all of us? Different kinds of temptations. But everybody faces temptation. Even Jesus was tempted. It is not a sin to be tempted. But in the temptation, we have a choice is what we're going to do with that temptation. We have a choice. You say, well, Pastor Lauren, I feel powerless in that moment. Well, it's easier to avoid temptation than it is to resist sin. So what we want to do is we want to do everything that we can to not put ourselves in situations where we're going to be tempted. If you know where you're going to be tempted, don't keep going back to the same places where you know you're going to be tempted. Don't keep looking out the balcony in the afternoon. <laughs> and if we're going to win this battle, we have to be fierce about this battle. If we're going to be victorious, we have to make some hard decisions, some decisions that some people might not understand, some decisions that some people might ridicule. Do you know what? I could care less what anybody thinks about that. We have to make a decision to live in victory. We have to make a decision. So we watch TV with a remote. I'm preaching now. We watch TV with a remote in our hands. And we change the channel. If my daughters were sitting here, they would tell you how many times their mother and I have changed the channel in the middle of a TV program or turned it off. Said, I'll just we'd be halfway through it. And even if it's something we enjoy, like I'll just I'll tell them turn it off. Oh, Dad, do that. No, turn it off. We're not doing that here. Walked out of movie theaters in the middle of the movie, even though I paid 15 bucks plus popcorn and everything else. <laughs> Why? Because I know my eyes and my ears are a gate to my heart. Knowing that I have to protect my heart. You know what's more precious to me? The love of my wife is more precious to me. You know what's more precious to me? The respect of my church family is more important to me. You know what's more important to me? The honor of my heavenly father. That's more important to me. And so we have to be careful not to put ourselves in temptation. So because it is easier to avoid temptation than it is to resist sin. But sadly, and this is why we're talking about this, verse 4. David sent messengers to get her. And she came to him and he slept with her. The affair is brief. Some might call it a fling or a one night stand. A fulfilled middle age fantasy. I mean, it doesn't really matter, does it? I mean, the secrecy of the palace. No one will ever know anyway. Or will they? By the way, there's nothing in the story to indicate that Bathsheba resisted David's advances. There is no protest. 
There is no cry out for help. This is not a rape. It appears she cooperated willingly. Maybe Bathsheba is a little starstruck with King David. But now they must both bear the consequences. Verse 5, the scripture says, The woman conceived and she sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. Now there's a little line in there that might be confusing to you. And it says, talks about Bathsheba. She was going through a period of cleansing, bathing herself, um, and what, for her impureness. And basically what, there is a little clue here in the text that is letting us know that Bathsheba had just had her menstrual period. And so um, it's letting us know this is David's baby. Okay. It's not, this is not her husband's baby. This is, this is David's baby. But instead of facing his sin and confessing it, David has a moment of panic. His mind is racing. What will I do now? How can he cover it up? How can I make it all go away? And immediately a plan begins to formulate in David's mind. He, he decides to call Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, the Hittite, home from battle. Uriah is a soldier in David's army. He's with Joab, the general, and they are off at war and they are fighting. And David comes up with an ingenious plan. He says immediately, go send Uriah home. It's time for Uriah to have a little R&R. It's time for Uriah to spend some time at home with his wife. I know how to make this all go away. He calls Uriah home to enjoy the embrace of his wife. And when it becomes obvious to everyone that Bathsheba is pregnant, everyone's going to conclude, well, that, that must have happened when her husband was home on leave. But what David did not expect was the integrity of Uriah. The soldier did not feel that it was right to go home to his wife when his fellow soldiers were still on the battlefield. So he stayed outside of the home and slept at the entrance of the king's palace. David is a resourceful guy, though. I mean, he didn't get to where he is overnight. He's resourceful. He calls Uriah and says, come on, man, I'm giving you a little break here. I'm giving you a little vacation time. I'm giving you the weekend off. Why didn't you come, come home, man? Go, go home for a home-cooked meal and, and go home and be with your wife and your family. Enjoy some time off. Brings Uriah in and Uriah says, it's not right. I just can't do that. My soldiers, fellow soldiers are on the field. It's not right. And so David says, oh, okay, okay, just stick around another day. And David in his mind said, I know how to get him home. David, at the king's table, David feeds him a choice meal. And the Bible says that David got Uriah drunk. However, even drunk Uriah shows more integrity than King David. Now, David is a desperate man. Now David is panic-stricken. David escalates his plan to a level he never thought he would rise to. Murder. David sends Uriah back with a letter. David writes a letter and he puts it in a sealed envelope. Let me ask you, did David trust Uriah? Absolutely he did. Uriah goes back to the battlefield not knowing that as he hands the letter to Joab the general, that he is handing him an order for his own death. Joab takes the envelope and he opens it up, not sure what the letter is going to contain, and he opens it up in front of Uriah and he reads the letter. Joab doesn't know everything that has happened in this moment, but he knows something has happened. In obedience to the king, he puts Uriah where the battle is the fiercest and calls the men to come back, to pull back, and Uriah is killed. David, when he receives word, must have in that moment exhaled a powerful sigh of relief. Man, what a jam that was. What a difficult moment that was. Man, what was I thinking? I know what I was feeling, but I'm not sure what I was thinking. But we survived it. We got through that thing and thinking that David has got away with adultery and murder. But God has seen things differently. And the chapter ends, verse 27. But the thing David has done displeased the Lord. There is so much to learn in the story. The fact that a godly man like David 
could succumb to such temptation and sin and adultery and even murder tells us a lot about the power of our own desires, the power of sin to destroy our lives and those that we love, and the vital importance of abiding with Jesus so that we we remain strong against the lusts of our flesh. There is no doubt the story is included in Scripture as a warning and as a cautionary tale. But how could this happen? I can't tell you how many times I have read this chapter this week over and over again. Even this morning, as I was getting ready, I was listening on my phone, my Bible app, listening to this chapter over and over and over, letting this get in my heart. And I keep asking the powerful question, how could this happen? How could this happen to David? Remember something, friends. This is the man after God's own heart. This is the boy that was out in the field that was writing psalms to God that under the power of God killed the lion and the bear as he watched over the sheep. This is the boy that God selected to be the next king and Samuel the prophet poured the oil over David's head and anointed him in front of his father and his brothers. This is the man that went against Goliath and said, you come against me with sword and spear, but I come against you in the name of the Lord. This is David. This is the one who brought the Ark of the Covenant back and restored worship back to Israel. How could this have happened? This is the psalm writer. How could this happen? And it has led me to ask the question, could it happen to me? And could it happen to you? Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a pastor in Germany during World War II killed as a martyr, was hung by the Nazis. He once wrote about what happens when our simple desires take control of us. There's not a person here in this room who hasn't experienced that. All of us at times in various ways, our simple desires have taken control of us and we have given in to those. But he writes this, at this moment, at this moment, God is quite unreal to us. He loses all reality and only desire for the creature is real. The only reality is the devil. And then he writes these powerful words. I can't get this off my mind. He says, Satan here does not fill us with hatred of God, but with forgetfulness of God. The devil doesn't, to cause you or to me to fall, does not have to just... To have something happen in our lives that would completely destroy our faith and make us walk away from God. All the enemy has to do is to get us to forget God. And in that moment, David wasn't thinking, he was thinking about something, but he wasn't thinking about the Lord. He wasn't thinking about praise and worship. He wasn't thinking about the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. God supplies all my needs. He wasn't thinking about that. So how was David defeated? And let me walk through this quickly with you. I want you to notice the little cracks, the little cracks. First, David neglected his responsibilities. Where was David supposed to be? With his men on the battlefield. But the Bible says in verse 1, David remained in Jerusalem. I want you, as we walk through these together, as as we discover how David's foundation crumbled and the cracks that happened. I want you to consider in your life, and I will consider in my life, if any of these cracks appear in our own foundations. David was neglecting his responsibilities. Are you neglecting your responsibilities? David, second, allowed his eyes and his mind to go outside of God's protective boundaries. We talked about those guardrails. David pushed past the guardrails and allowed his eyes to linger and allowed his heart and his mind to go outside of God's protective boundaries. And then David ignored the warning. Remember the servant that came to to David and said, you know, she is the daughter of so-and-so. Oh, and by the way, she is the wife of a man named Uriah. David let those words go in one ear and out the other. Refused to listen to it because there was a passion that was burning. There was a lust that was on fire within him that he wanted. He didn't listen to the warnings. I'm telling you, friends, today, God brought you here today as a warning. 
How did I get here? How did I get to Pacific Christian Center? Maybe it's your first time here. I don't know where, who you are, where you're from today, but don't you believe that the Word of God for us is a warning to our soul? Do you believe that, everybody? It might not be lust and adultery and murder for us. It could be something else. It could be raging anger that's out of control. It could be bitterness that's eating up our soul because we can't forgive. It could be greed and materialism and the drive for more of this life and the passions of this life and the things of this life, thinking one more high will satisfy one more purchase will satisfy. It could be a host of a lot of different things in our lives. This is not just a sermon about lust and adultery. This is a sermon today about defeating the giants that are within us. Not just the giants out there. Not just the Goliaths that we run in the valley to fight. But the giants that are inside. That are below the surface that no one sees. But God sees. And so today can we heed the warning. This is the prayer of my heart and my life today. May we heed the warning of the Holy Spirit. May we heed the warning of God's word. And then we see that David, here's another crack. He makes decisions based on his emotions and not the word of God. David knew the will of God. He loved the law of God. He writes about this in the Psalms. But during this time of spiritual fatigue, he is not thinking about the law of God. He has strong desires for this woman. He knew what he wanted and he chose to trust his desires and his feelings more than the word of God. And friend, can I warn you today, you have to be very careful about listening to your feelings very careful about listening to your desires. They lie to you and tell you that things are good for you that, are, that conflict with Scripture. Be careful not to listen to your emotions and to your feelings. And if you watch for it, you see it all the time. You hear people you work with, people you know, people in your own family. You hear phrases and things that come out of them that lets us know they're making decisions that are just based on their feelings. They'll say things like, I deserve to be happy. Or it will only be this once. Or no one will ever know. Or I've fallen out of love. Or my spouse, I don't know, they're just a different person. They're just a, they're just a different person. Or my spouse is not meeting my needs. I'm not hurting anyone. See, all these um, words and phrases that we use to rationalize our decision based on our feelings. We cannot make decisions based on feelings. We must trust the word of God and his will for our lives. I was reading this week about a celebrity actress who is a Christian who is talking about her decision to divorce her husband and to marry another man. And she was giving her justification and she said that in her heart she loved the other man. And at first, she felt like it was wrong for her to follow her heart. But then she got to the point where she felt like divorce was the right thing. And this is what she said. She said, I decided that God could speak to me through my heart. But here's what the Bible says. The heart is deceitful and deceptive. The heart is deceitful. Don't tell your kids, follow your heart. <laughs> tell them, follow the word of God. The heart is deceitful. The heart is deceptive in what it is. You can't trust your heart. You can't trust your feelings. Sin will make you feel good and it will blind you to the truth. Another crack. And then here's one more. David chose cover up over confession. Even after the act with Bathsheba, David could have come to himself. He could have fell on his knees before God. He could have made confession. He could have made things right between him and God. But he doesn't. I'm reminded of James chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. This says, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by what? Their own evil desires and enticed. So how can we defeat the giants that are within us? Let me get, get to the punch. Can I get to the punch? Only through the gospel. Only through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Only at the cross can we defeat the giants within us. You are not strong enough. I am not strong enough. I am not powerful enough. You are not powerful enough. Only through the power of Jesus can we defeat the giants that are within us. And so I can give you some practical things. The, the first I would say to you is we have to maintain our passion for God. It is essential that we maintain our passion for God. Can you this morning check the gauge of your passion for God? All of us in our vehicles, we have 
different gauges and of course we have the fuel gauge uh, in our car and some of us when it gets to three quarters of a tank we run and fill it up because we're afraid we're going to run out of gas but there are others of us and you know who you are you let that thing get pretty low uh, down there and uh, I mean that thing's coughing and burping and finally get up to the gas pump and you know thank you Lord for protecting me and getting me to this to, to this place but I want to ask you today would you would you listen to the voice of the spirit would you check the gauge of your spiritual passion for God is your gauge on or are you halfway there or is it faltering you say I'm running on empty today pastor you can restore that passion for God you can restore it you can throw another log on that fire you can come back to the things of the Lord you can do the things that you did at first and can I say something to you today and I want you to get this in your heart I tell people this all the time because it's become a conviction in my heart listen to this nothing you do today will be more important than spending time with Jesus that has become a conviction in my heart. And then I get up early. I was up at 5.30 this morning. And I'm, a, I'm an early riser and an early to bed. Where's my people? Anybody out there? That's right. That's right. Nine o'clock. Good night, everybody. But, but, but I, I like the morning time and I can get up. And sometimes I'm up two hours before anyone. I guess there's only one in my house. Before my wife now. And uh, I can jump. I can, I can jump on my laptop, and immediately I'm answering emails, and I'm, you know, I'm working on sermons, or I'm preparing for a staff meeting, or I'm, I mean, I can get a lot of work done in two hours before I ever get to the office. I've already done two hours of work, and then I can get to the desk. And once you get to the office, it's revolving doors sometimes, and just sometimes you, you can't get a whole lot done uh, that I, that's on my list. I'm helping other people, and that's all. That's all good. And you get to the end of the day and realize, you know what? I didn't spend time with the Lord today. I feel a little weary spiritually. I feel a little empty spiritually. And God has just driven this down in my soul. Lauren, there is nothing you will do today that's more important than spending time with me. So I'm learning, push, every, push it back. Other things, other responsibilities. I got, Lord, I got to follow with that person. I got to do this. I got to do that. Push all that back in the morning until I've spent, the, spent time with the Lord. And I don't know how much time you need to spend with him. God will show you that. But, but I've got to spend time with the Lord because this is what Jesus said in John chapter 15. He said, abide with me. He says, because apart from me, you can do nothing. And we take that sometimes to think about the positive thing. I can do nothing like, you know, I can't preach the sermon. I can't do that without him. Or I can't serve someone or bless someone or encourage someone. I, apart from Jesus, I can do nothing. But I also think it's so true in terms of resisting temptation and sin. Apart from Jesus, if I'm not abiding with him, apart from Jesus, I do not have the power to resist temptation. I do not have the power to stand against sin. I do not have the power. I do not have the power. Can we just be honest? When you see that gaze to look away, I don't have the power I mean if David come on don't judge me fellas hey, this is the man after God's own heart he's the one struggling and it goes for the ladies too there's nothing you'll do today it's more important spending time with Jesus so we got to make it a priority we got to make it a priority as the worship team comes I would also give you this Consider the cost of feeding your giant. Consider the cost of feeding your giant. There's a price to pay. David paid a price. Bathsheba paid a price. Not only did Uriah die, but a bunch of other men died too. They, they're paying for David's sin. David's family begins to crumble and fall apart. And you'll, you can read about this in the rest of 2 Samuel. His family is never the same again. The cost, what's the cost? What is the price tag? What are the consequences to this decision before you give in to that temptation? Count the cost. Before you become reactive, before you get angry, before you're selfish or unforgiving or grateful or before you gossip, before you lust, count the cost. He paid a great price. I wish I had more time to talk about that. Two more things, one. There's no substitute for an accountability relationship. This is where we get honest. Those of you that have, have had real battles with controlling issues and controlling sins and addictions, those kinds of things, what you know in this room, and there's several of you in this room, what you know is that you can't find freedom alone. We're stronger together. Iron sharpens iron. To have a trusted brother, to have a trusted sister in your life, to have an accountability partner. For about nearly 10 years now, I don't think I've ever told you this. I have an accountability partner that lives in another part of the state. 
brother we used to go to church together many years ago and I have not seen my friend well I haven't seen him since I've been in Santa Maria I have probably four years since I've seen my friend but for 10 years every single day 365 days a year we text each other he's my accountability partner and I can tell this man anything in my life and I have told him everything in my life hiding nothing telling him everything because I need a trusted brother that can pray for me, encourage me, speak to me, and I'm the same for him. And we, most, most days we send each other a scripture verse, say, hey brother, how you doing? How's it going? How's your family? We pray about all kinds of prayer needs and things, whatever. But I got somebody in my corner if I need somebody. If I'm struggling, if I'm in a battle, I got somebody I can, I can call. Do you have someone in your life? That accountability partner that can help you find healing and protection. Let me say again, it's easier to avoid temptation than it is to fight sin. Finally, let's bring this back to the gospel. At the cross, Jesus has purchased our freedom. And maybe you're here today and you say, Pastor Lauren, I'm just so bound and I just can't find freedom. I can't find victory. I want you to know today at the cross, Jesus purchased your freedom. You are redeemed at the cross of Jesus. You're already free. You just have to learn to walk in the freedom that God has already given you. Walk in the freedom that God has already given you. Stand firm, Galatians says, in that freedom that God has given you. And if you feel that you can't do it by yourself, that's what the church is about. That's what the church is about. That's what a small group is about. That's what discipleship is about. That's what brothers and sisters serving God together is about. Church is not an event. Church is a group of people that share life together and that are on mission for Jesus together. That's what the church is. Church is not a Sunday morning service. We are the church and we are there to support and encourage one another and to be that confidant, to be that help in time of need. Would you be a help to someone in their time of need? If someone came to you and said, brother, I need somebody in my corner. Would you be that for somebody? Would you be that for a sister? Some of you ladies, would you be that person for someone who says, I need a, someone in my life that I can talk to, that I can pray for me and someone I can count on. If you'll do that, I believe that God will set you free. To those who have sinned, forgiveness is available. Can you say amen? amen? I know there hadn't been a lot of amen moments this morning, but that's a good one. To those who have sinned, forgiveness is available. To those who are struggling, don't give up. Your strength is found in God. Pursue Jesus with all of your heart. To those who feel trapped and locked in despair because of your sin and your past, remember at the cross, Jesus purchased your freedom. Our sin is great, but God's grace is greater. Amen. Amen, everybody. Let's stand together. Praise God. Praise God. Well, I'm glad that sermon's over, everybody. Woo! Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. We have to be faithful to the scripture. Would you bow your heads all over this room? Bow your heads all over this room. Lord, we thank you for your grace. Thank you for your grace. Thank you that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When we were at our worst, you love us the most. You're a God who's abundant in grace. You're powerful in mercy. Your mercy is new every day. Your love is unfailing for us. We are your children. Nothing we can do to make you love us more, love us less. Today, Lord, your heart is near to us. For those of us in this room who are struggling today, maybe there's some today who just need a Savior. They've never put their faith in Jesus. Today can be the day that you put your faith in Jesus. Say, Jesus, come into my heart and my life. Would you save me and forgive me? I believe you died on the cross for me. I believe you rose again. I want to begin new life in you. You can put your faith in Jesus as simple as that today. But maybe there's some of you here today and there have been some cracks in your foundation. And today, God has really opened your eyes wide to see the danger of these cracks. And today, you need to run to the cross. Find the strength that's found only in Jesus. Find the hope that's in the Lord, and God will help you. And maybe there's some today who've been living in a place of just complete, utter failure and despair. Today, Jesus sees you where you are. He wants to lift you up out of the miry clay 
put your feet on a rock to stay. Jesus wants to restore and transform and turn your life around and make your life a testimony. Jesus has the power to do that. And if he can do it for millions, he can do it for you. Don't listen to the lie of the enemy that says it cannot happen in your life. It can and will in Jesus' name. I believe that. So today, hands lifted in this room. Can we just lift our hands to the Lord? Let's just make an altar right where we're standing. Whatever you need from the Lord, right where you're standing, I want you to reach out to him. I just think we need a response moment, don't you? To the word of God, just reach out to the Lord right now. If you need forgiveness, ask him for forgiveness. If you want to make Jesus the Lord of your life, ask him to come in your heart to save you and forgive you. If you've been in the battle, you're a believer, but you've been in the battle and you've been struggling and you're trying to find that freedom today, reach out for the grace of God. Reach out for the power of the Holy Spirit today. Ask the Lord to restore. Ask the Lord to give you the strength and the power. Ask the Lord to help you to find the structure and the accountability that you need to stay close to Jesus. You can't win this alone. Ask the Lord to help you in a time of need today. And for those of you who are battling despair today, let the Lord put hope back into your heart. Let the Lord put hope back in. He loves you. God's never stopped loving you. He loves you. He knows where you are. He knows everything. He knows what's hidden. He knows what's secret. He, lo- he knows it all. And He loves you. He loves you. He's your Father. He loves you. He's not given up on you. He's not finished working in your life. And Paul said, I'm convinced that He who began a good work in me will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. And I believe that and confess that over your life today. Our worship team is going to lead us in a final song today. And I want our prayer team to come. And as we close this service today, if you need prayer, you need a prayer partner, you need somebody on the journey with you, these men and women are here today to serve you and to help you in your time of need. Amen. Amen. Let's sing. Once again, thank you for joining us for today's podcast. Special thanks to those of you who give so generously to make this ministry possible. If God has put it on your heart to give, please visit our website at pacificchristian.net. And if you enjoyed today's message, please consider subscribing, sharing with your friends on social media, and giving us a rating in iTunes. This will enable us to expand our reach and share the message of Christ with more people. Until next time, God bless you.